Hello and welcome to another episode of Pleasant's Bites, where we're joined by some of the brightest talents on stage at the heart of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. This week, journalist Mark Fisher speaks with Robert Bathurst, star of Cold Feet, Downton Abbey, Toast of London, and this August at the Pleasance, the stage adaptation of Christopher Reed's The Song of Lunch. Robert's performance is wowing audiences and critics alike, receiving five-star reviews that hail him as a poetic delight. You can catch the performance every day at the Pleasance at 2.20 this fringe, just one of over 200 shows taking place every single day. With a brilliant conversation with Jeremy Stockwell last week and the theatrical father and daughter duo, Sean and Josie Dale-Jones still to come, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. But for now, take a seat, grab a glass, and enjoy this week's edition of Pleasant Bites. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the second of our weekly Pleasant Bites podcast. My name is Mark Fisher, and I'm very pleased to be with you today. Very pleased uh, uh, to, to find ourselves in, in in the weather that I was promising the American students. I, I was t- teaching last week in uh, last month, you know, in July. To s- they were trying to say what what is the is is the weather like normally in Scotland, and it's very difficult to describe. It's like this, and uh, I have to say, if, if any of you. Um, I'm sure you won't get bored over the next hour, but if you do, you can you can spend time watching my my brown trousers becoming slightly less brown as the, as as they as they dry off. Um, I'm delighted today um, to um, have with me uh, Robert Bathurst, and I was going to give an introduction at the start, uh, which talked about uh, his fantastic play the, that is that is in uh, round the corner at Pleasance Fourth, which is called The Song of Lunch, which we will be talking about a lot. And I was going to talk about uh, television shows such as Joking Apart and uh, Cold Feet, obviously, and Downton Abbey and also Toast. Um, but then late last night, um, Robert sent me a CV, and I'm just going <laughs> to get a tone of, of, of Robert's sense of humor and his, his um, approach to life. Um, I'm going to just read you a couple of se- sections from the CV, because, uh, and, and the, the context I'll give you is that mostly when you see an actor's CV, it is very, very sober, very, very se- uh, straightforward, and it'll say I was in you know, a production of, of Hamlet, dra- directed by Trevor Nunn, very, very sober. This is what, tra- uh, this is, <laughs> this is what Robert sounded like. St- this is the beginning. Born West Africa, lived in Ireland, age three to nine, convent school. Lied in first confession, age six. (laughs) Sent to satisfactorily brutal boarding school in County Meath. Age nine, moved to England. Monastery school till 18. Still dodgy in confession. Age 13, decided he wanted to be an actor. Didn't own up to this until he was 25. And so on and so on. Um, Jumping ahead, I'm only going to go for the most trivial bits here. Um, Gave up appearing in TV commercials, having sold chocolate, coffee, beer, spaghetti, DIY tools, insurance, banking, newspapers, cigarettes, trains, and many others long forgotten. And then just skipping to the end, uh, we can fill in the gaps uh, over the next 50 minutes. But uh, Robert has been killed in the first episodes of Hornblower and Red Dwarf. Bits of his body have been played by other people, uh, include his private parts by Kerry Shale in Joking Apart, and his nose by Felly McDermott in uh, Goggles the Nose, adapted by Alistair Beaton, Nottingham Playhouse, and Bucharest. <laughs> so welcome. Let's have a round of applause for Robert Bathurst. Thank you. Thank you. So I have to apologise, I'm throwing your own jokes at you, but um, <laughs> it is very, very amusing. Actually, talking about jokes, the thing that when I was doing some sensible research, instead of just reading somebody's CV, um, I, the thing that uh, uh, jumped out of me one one newspaper interview is that you're a, a big fan of Half Man, Half Biscuit. Is this, is this true? Yeah, Half Man, Half Biscuit have been making albums since about 1985. as a genius poet called Nigel Blackwell. Uh, who eschews all publicity. He, he hates cliché, he hates celebrity. Uh, he famously refused to go on to uh, Jules Holland's The Tube 
program, which at the time was very cool and, 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 uh, and huge, uh, because Tranmere Rovers were playing that afternoon. <laughs> um, he is witty. If I'm feeling down, I'll put on Half Man, Half Biscuit very, very loud. I'll also, often you can't hear the lyrics, or I can't uh, quite hear the lyrics, because sometimes you know, they're a bit indistinct. The lyrics are witty and sharp and poetic, and they're brilliant. And he's just Good. produced another album. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was thinking there's, there's one song that <laughs> this is a very obscure part of the conversation. We won't talk entirely about Half Man, Half Biscuit, <laughs> a band <laughs> from Birkenhead. But uh, one song is called I Hate Neris Hughes, which uh, gives you an idea of... <laughs> he now slightly regrets saying that because it was slightly misinterpreted. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, no, he, 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 uh, the, the various titles appeal. The Light of the End of the Tunnel is The Light of the Oncoming Train. That's one of his. <laughs> um, all I Want for Christmas is a Dukla Praga Away kit and... Um, Trouble Over Bridgewater, which is rather good for anybody who's been to Manchester. <laughs> so, so there's several, I and mean, there's, there's loads of them. I recommend his lyrics. And uh, actually, well, I was just sort of thinking about I hate Neris Hughes. I mean, the joke there is that Neris Hughes, as one of the liverbirds, is a sort of national institu institution. Mm. To say you hate her is a bit like saying you hate your grandmother or something. No. Um, but there is something about celebrity and being put in the uh, public eye that uh, means you're, you're, you're fair game. Have you, have you had, we'll talk about all the positive things people have said, said about you, but, but uh, do you get sort of, have you ever had a sort of negative reaction from, from just by being uh, on the telly? Uh, well, I don't, I don't it's, just, it's, it's, it's disingenuous to say I don't play the celebrity game because I go on chat shows and things like that. And so, but I would never do anything which has the title celebrity in it. Mm. Um, I don't know, celebrity confuses me because I'm not quite sure when you're a celebrity and when you aren't. Are you a celebrity at breakfast in the morning? Are you a celebrity only once you've gone in through the studio door? And anyone who calls himself a celebrity, I think, is where madness lies. But uh, nonetheless, I, you, you get on telly and you do stunts and, and things like that to sell the show. And um, you can't say, no, I, 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 I don't uh, do that sort of thing. However, I think it's a state of mind. And I think celebrity is a... It, it's only how people perceive you. It can't be how you perceive yourself. You'd go, it'd be, it's sort of madness, wouldn't it be? I, th I, think. Well, I think it is. I think it's, it's dangerous as well because you, you, it's, it's, it just sends you askew, really, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. probably. But it's great. It's, if you're in a success on a TV show, it's fantastic. It's great. And... and, and of course, being a performer, you're in, in, in the public entertainment industry. So if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's working, if, if you're in a hit, that's great. And, and that being the case on the Edinburgh Fringe, the, I, I do think that the Edinburgh Fringe is a sort of tremendous uh, leveller in the sense that everybody's got an equal chance of having the hit show. I mean, you're here with, with a show that's doing very, very well at, uh, at uh, Pleasance Forth, but you're in a way no different to the student company who's, who's, who's just trying their luck for the first time on the Fringe. Completely. I mean, it's uh, the great thing about the Fringe. Since I was here when I was a student a long, long time ago, it's got much shinier. The whole, all the hubs, you know, the Pleasances, the underbellies, the, uh, the assembly rooms and so forth, they've all got these fans, fancy flags and, and, and shining lights and bars. And in the old days, we, we never used to we couldn't even pronounce falafel, you know. What I mean, it was, it was, it was, <laughs> but uh, but uh, but essentially, it's exactly the same, and everybody is on the same level because essentially, you're, you've just hire a, a dusty black box, and you've got to entertain people, and that's the same. It's it's never been. It's, it's no no different, and everyone's in the same position. Um, and so, yes, exactly. The student shows, who are playing, um, you know, in their. Um, converted containers and uh, those who have larger spaces. And is that your attitude here? You're doing theatre, um, you know, theatre is a lot, especially theatre on the fringe is a lot less lucrative than theatre, than, than doing screen work. Um, is, but, but you've done a lot of theatre all the way through your career. Is, 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 it, is, is that part of it? You're not, because you're not there to, for, for, for fame, you're there because you like doing the job. Yeah, well, I mean, I've always, I've always done theatre. I mean, I've, um, 
yes, I mean, I, I've, every, I've always done theatre, but I mean, th this, this project, I, I'm taking this to Edinburgh because a festival should be a place for experimentation. And this uh, project that I've got, which um, is experimental in the sense that it's a verse comedy with cartoons, and I've spent quite a long time harbouring this material and trying it out in art galleries and things like that, and now we've got this staging with, um, with animation. And I've been telling people about it for about well, several years, and I've been meeting such blank looks <laughs> when, I, when I describe it that I thought it's time to put it on, really, and put it on in front of critical opinion. And a festival like this is where critical opinion uh, is, and mm -hmm. they'll come along and they'll judge it. And so it's, it's, it's exposing it properly for the first time. And it's, and it's very good, I can say. I saw it the other day, and it's by, written by Christopher Reed. Before it, uh, you, you're on stage with Rebecca Johnson. And curiously, and this question might come up again later, curiously, if you describe the, uh, the narrative of it, it's very, very, almost banally simple. It's a man who, who meets his ex-wife at a... Uh, 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 over lunch. I mean, it's very little more than that, but uh, the, 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 it's the detail that makes it special, isn't it? Yeah, it's in verse. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't use the word, uh, the poetry word in any of my marketing of it. Um, uh, I did it in Chicago in, a, in an art gallery there, just uh, with the other piece that goes with it. This is the second half of the, of the double bill that I'm planning. Uh, and I said to people in Chicago I was working with, I'm doing a poetry show. And they went, yeah, great, yeah, tell us when it is. You say that to people in this country, and they go, <laughs> oh, no, is it going to be Dante or something like that? You know, who knows? Is, is, uh, is it Keats or whatever? Is it going to be difficult? And it isn't difficult. And Christopher Reed has, has written this, this um, verse book. It it's, wasn't written for the stage. Um, and it is. It's, yes, an ex-girlfriend has left him 15 years before. He hasn't been able to write since. She left him for a more successful writer than him, and they're meeting in Soho 15 years later, and in the hope of possibly rekindling it. Possibly not. Uh, the hope is more his than hers. The hope is... Certain, well, it, well, well, you see, that's why I want to do the double bill, because it came out of the first piece, which is called A Scattering. And uh, Christopher Reed wrote A Scattering. Uh, his wife died in 2005, and he spent three years writing this poem, called A Scattering, which won the Costa Book of the Year. It beat every novel, every history, every, you know, everything in uh, 2009. And I read that. And then The Song of Lunch, he started writing on the day he finished it. So there's, they're both about love and loss. And, and obviously the first one is about love and loss, but the second one is too, and it's, it, it inherits how he was feeling from writing A Scattering. So how much he actually wants to get back with her and how much he's, although it's not autobiographical, how much the character is just pulling back and unable to engage. And he can't engage. In Song of Lunch, it's, which is farcical and funny, he, he disengages from her every few, every about six times during the, during the piece. And she has to drag him back to consciousness. And, and, and that, I think, is an inheritance of how the author was feeling in writing The Scattering. Mm -hmm. But it, it stands on its own, The Song of Lunch. And uh, it's, yes, it is. It is about uh, yearning and perhaps the yearning is more on his side, and, and sh but she's also curious. She's come over from Paris. She's, come, she's left her children behind. She's left her very successful husband behind. <laughs> and, uh, and she says things like, everything's perfect. And anyone who says that everything's perfect, you think, hang on a minute, something's up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh, th 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 thinking that, that, uh, that you know, the, 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 the tradition, the, Br the British playwriting tradition goes back to, to Shakespeare and Marlowe and p people who are often described as poets, and then verse verse fell out of fashion. It sort of was tried, T.S. Eliot after the war tried to revive it a little bit, but it's been, it's got a, as you say, it has a sort of, no, 
a, a, a bad reputation. So what, 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 what was it that went through your head? I suppose Stephen Burkhoff or someone like that might have had introduced a sort of urban poetry. But what was it th about, about this material that when you looked at it, you thought, oh, I could put that on the stage? When I, when I first read A Scattering, and um, I had just finished, this is about 2007-8, I'd done a, a play by Charles Peaty, who's doing the cartoons for The Song of Lunch. He does the cartoons in, um, in the Daily Telegraph, a, a thing called Alex. He's been satirizing the city since the late 80s with Russell Taylor. And, and he did, wrote a play as Alex, and I did, a, a, we, over 18 months we rehearsed this play as Alex with 13 screens eventually, and I was interacting with all the other characters, and we took it around the world to all the places that um, Alex is, is, played, is, is published. So I was looking for another thing to do, because I so enjoyed doing that, and when I read A Scattering, for reasons that uh, were very personal, and I wanted to, and, and, uh, and, and it articulated um, grief in a way which I was incapable of mustering. Um, and I, I mean, when I read it, although it was written as individual poems, I thought there was a narrative there. Mm. And so I immediately thought this could work with an audience. And then I read Song of Lunch, which is more direct, and, and I felt that this could be banged out to an audience directly, because it's in the third person, it's like a narration, and then going back into the dialogue, and then going back to, sorry, going back to the audience as to how, <laughs> how terribly that conversation has gone. Um, I felt that they, they both, although they weren't written for theatre, could really work in theatre. Mm -hmm. And the language is so immediate, and so funny, and so clear, and so emotional. Uh, I thought it, and I'm not poetry scene at all, I don't, I'm not into poetry, I, I read poetry, but I don't, I'm not saying I'm in, in, into poetry. And I'm intrigued that per, the poetry world is so, well, they, they, they much prefer, they're just done in a room above a pub, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't venture into theatre. And when I was working at places like the Royal Court, I was talking about Christopher Reid to their literary manager, and they'd never heard of him. Loads of people in the wider literary world haven't heard, really, of people, people are huge in the poetry world. And so it's a celebration of language as much as anything else, this whole project, is to, to, to get it on and to see if, this language sits well in theatre and has, has a place in theatre, mm -hmm. and that's why I come here and tried it out. And it seems to me that there was something about there is something about the the texture of the writing that it's that although there are rhymes in it, it's not sort of heavily rhythmically rhyming, so that you, mm. you you're not sort of uh, you you can you can have a sort of natural naturalistic is maybe not the right word, but you can have a a, a more natural approach to the language that keeps an audience on on side, perhaps. I loathe the poetry voice. Mm -hmm. I don't think that poetry needs to be said in a poetry voice. I don't think you need to point up the fact that it's poetry, and it is, or not, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. I you know, think, oh, I'll leave off, just say it. And, uh, and in fact, the, the, the rhythms of it, that it's written in such a way that you just need to make sense of it, and it'll sound, it'll sound like ordinary speech. Although, of course, yes, there's little, I mean, it is, it's, it's written very rhythmically, and, it's very, and there are rhymes in there, but they're internal rhymes, they're, they're delicious rhymes. And, uh, and Christopher doesn't, ever talk about writing. He talks about things occurring, things happening, things, things emerging. He never sort of talks about, so it's not sort of crafted and right. It, and he does have construction in his mind, of course, and, and, and rhythm, but he's got an innate sense of, of rhythm and rhyme, which actually lends itself to the sense of what's, what's being said. So yeah, I, mean, I am completely attentive to the, to the, to the, to the verse of it, but with the, ho the hope is to just deliver it in a way which doesn't make people aware that it's poetry all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one thing that went through my head when I was watching it was seeing you as a stage actor and having been familiar with you on, 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 on television, it reminded me of that thing that, that used to be much more the case if you think about the, the classic 1970s sitcoms, people like Richard Bryars and Penelope Keith, all fashioned 
their careers uh, on the stage and then brought it to the small screen and there was a sort of uh, they had an acting muscle when when, when you yeah. would see them on screen. Do 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 do, um, do you have an acting muscle? <laughs> I have an acting muscle. I don't see television and, and stages being. Uh, I see them as the same thing. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's about reaching the audience and landing, it, getting it to row Z if it's in the theatre, or, or playing it through the camera if it's if it's there. It's, it's, it's exactly the same. It's about about squeezing the language, making get, making sure each beat lands, and and giving the space for the other person to talk or, 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 and allowing space for them to absorb what it is you're saying. So you've got to be heard. <laughs> you've got to make it clear. And then you've just got to play the undertow of it. And wherever that is, whether it's on telly or theatre, it's, it's the same juices flowing, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you mentioned comedy. The, you've, uh, you, most of your career, I think it's fair to say, has, has, has had a, a comic edge or has been in the, in the context of, of comedy. And you started off with the... With the um, Cambridge Footlights. So is, is, is comedy important? So we've started off talking about half man, half biscuit. I mean, humour is important to you. Well, not, it is, yeah. but I don't, I don't regard humour and drama as being separate. Uh, no. Comedy and drama as separate art forms. Mm -hmm. And um, which, so I, 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 I don't, I think people, people mistrust comedy. People, it took me ages to be seen for any, anything in drama. I started in radio comedy. I started did Footlights here and I did, went into ra ra comedy, ra radio comedy. And then, and I didn't go to drama school. And it took me a long time <laughs> to get to get to get perceived as someone who was worthy to do drama. You know, it's rather like the end of the pier. You're, you're, you know, you're allowed you're allowed to stay down the end of the pier, and the, and the drama people on the mainland, and 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 the, the people on the mainland are allowed down to the end of the pier, and to anoint them to anoint the world of comedy with their presence, and then they go back to the to the safety of the mainland. People down the end of the pier aren't allowed on the mainland, for, and it took me a long time to get onto the mainland and do 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 drama. Um, and, and to be seen to be um, worthy enough to do it. And that, so that, that perception was something I was fighting. Uh, I, yes, I do have done a lot of comedy, but, um, and I've done, done the other, but I don't, regard, I don't regard them as separate art, mm -hmm. art forms. Mm -hmm. and, and not something that you take a different approach to. You've still got to hit the rhythm, you've got to hit the line, you've got to make the w thing make sense. Yeah, you've got to make it read, you've got to, make, you've got to connect you know, mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you, th I just mentioned the Cambridge Footlights. If 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 you were listening to this podcast and you were uh, a young company at the Pleasance, uh, just starting out, you think, well, how how can I possibly become <laughs> Robert Bathurst? You know, how do you get to the stage where uh, you've done all of the things that you've done? Uh, and in the little bit of uh, your CV that I just just read out, you you, you talk about not being. Uh, not coming out as an actor, as it were, into, until you were about 25 or so. Was, was, was that a difficult transition to get into, not just to get into the business, but also to get your head into the business? I've always wanted, I, so I wanted to do it from the age of 13, and, and I knew I was most comfortable when I was doing it. Um, so, but I'm not very good about announcing my ambitions in advance <laughs> of uh, doing them. And uh, so uh, everything I was doing was, was working towards um, doing this. Uh, but... Yeah, and, and the trouble is, it's any any, and I, I would advise anybody um, coming into it uh, is to ignore the looks of pity you get when you say, "I want to be an actor," <laughs> <laughs> because you say that, and everybody goes, "Oh yeah, it's bad, bad." I mean, I got this with this project, the Song of Lunch. I say I'm going to do a verse comedy with cartoons. Oh yes, yeah, so, so I got that. I've been, you get that all throughout your career, and you've just got to you've got to have have the, the nerve to, to to ride that, and uh, and to have the not self belief. Beyond reason, but just just to just to know your worth really, and um, and to and to pursue it, and and yes, take take no and accept no, and people might want to say no, but just 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 keep on and just and and listen to people as well. Don't assume that you um, 
that, that, that you're marvellous. You just have to, you have to take people's advice and listen, listen out for the, for the clues because people aren't always honest with you. But they will, the little, little words will come in which actually indicate that they, they don't think entirely what they're saying. So just, and don't ignore those, just pick those up and, and use them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are your memories of uh, Cambridge Footlights? It was, you were with some quite prestigious people in your, in your team. Well, I, did, I did it for three years. We did it at St Mary's Hall, just up the road there. Um, yeah, I mean, we did it, uh, I did it the first year, yeah, with uh, Jimmy Mulville and Roy McGrath and Nick Heitner. And uh, Heitner didn't come to the, the um, festival one, but we did it with Torian with him. And um, uh, Griff, Griff Rees Jones directed it. And we had Rowan Atkinson, we, had, we shared it with Oxford, and, and uh, Rowan was doing his thing with Richard Curtis and uh, Helen Atkinson Wood and Howard Goodall. His first early Mr. Bean, you know, sort of spotlight and coming in, coming in through. Um, yeah, and then, yes, I did it for two other years. And, uh, and then after I left, um, and they left, I was, they were a couple of years behind me, I toured Australia with, um, we got a pop promoter taking us to Australia. And we went with Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, and Emma Thompson, and Martin Bergman. And uh, we toured Australia, uh, lived like kings. And it wasn't the, really the sort of the best introduction to the profession. You thought, this is fantastic. Yeah, I'm gonna, you know. But uh, I wanted to get out of doing review. I, I couldn't see anybody over 33 doing review. And... Uh, I, I just I, I wanted to you know, have a slightly longer career, mm -hmm. and uh, so uh, I got out of that um, and uh, got into noises off for a year. But uh, at the end of that year, I got I had two words on my CV, and uh, and then I took a took a job holding a spear at the National Theatre in St Joan. Uh, I had one line for about four months in St Joan, understudying and walking on and saying this one line. <laughs> Uh, the one line was uh, the immortal words, halt who goes there. <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, I was utterly miserable, you know. And, uh, and I, because just before that, I had auditioned my agent, uh, we all shared this agent, um, who sort of wanted me to be a TV presenter. And, um, and did, put did me... Did you want to be a TV presenter? No, I didn't want to be a TV presenter, but, uh, but uh, I was quite good at lying. <laughs> and uh, so I, um, uh, I went along and, and auditioned for Esther Ranson's That's Life which was getting audiences of about sort of 17 million or something every week. And I went through three rounds of auditions, um, lying my, through my teeth about how much I wanted to do the job. And then we got into the audience, and, and uh, they offered me the job. And uh, I didn't do it. And uh, so I thought, I can't. I, if, I'm, if I want to do what I'm doing at the moment, I didn't want to be, have the, um, uh, the mark of being, having been one of the smart Alex on That's Life. And how, uh, how, how, much, uh, how many sleepless nights did you lose over that, not over that one, decision? Not one, no. absolutely not one. Uh, except when I was standing holding the spear in the National, going, hold who goes there, with my chain mail down to my eyes and up here, so in case any friend recognised me. <laughs> um, so I, go, and going, uh, I was thinking, I could be opening supermarkets by now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, that was, uh, that, but no, that was uh, not, 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 I was never worried about that. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm really glad I didn't do it. Because then I went off and did, you know, fringe theatre and... Um, I did a two-hour monologue on cannibalism at a pub in Chelsea. Um, that was um, uh, so I'd never worked so hard uh, as that. And I thought if I can carry that one off, then maybe I should carry on trying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, d d I think it seems this is a huge generalisation, but it seems to me that um, actors often fall into two, one of two categories. One is the type of actor who sits by the phone waiting for their agent to to ring and say, "Oh, I've got a part." 
And both of these are sort of very reasonable survival strategies. The other one is, say, is, is will say, no, I can't possibly just sit down, sit waiting for the phone. I'm going to make something happen. I'm going to take uh, control. Do, do you, and you're taking control right now with, by, by bringing your show to the Edinburgh Fringe. Is, is, is that t typical of your the, the way that you, the, that you look at things, that you will reject a, that's lucrative, that's life offer, you will bring a show to the Fringe, you will take control, you won't, you won't just sort of sit and wait for it to happen to you? I think, I think um, initiating a project has come late to me. Um, and I would encourage anybody who's starting in the profession is, is to be more entrepreneurial and, and get, get stuff on and, and, and see through, see a project through uh, of their own as much as they can. Um, but uh, no, I think it was the Alex show that, that made me, because they sent me the play in 2006, this, this, this thing about the cartoons. And then we developed it over a two-year period. And I really enjoyed that. It was, it was steering it. It was co-devising it. It was working with a team of people, all of whom had their voice. And, and, and it was collective. Phelan McDermott, from, um, you may know him from Improbable Theatre, he, he has a really, really interesting way of working. And um, I, I really love that. So, so I got the taste for it really quite late on, probably about sort of 12 years ago, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. to, to initiate my own projects. Um, in a, in a, and, uh, but also, you know, making sure, <laughs> hoping the phone will ring for other other ones as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a combination of the two f philosophies, really. Yeah, it's just just get, get, yeah, getting on and doing it, and just just um, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so this this project is, yeah, it's it's. I'm mean, just because it's a labour of love doesn't mean to say it's any good. But uh, it, is, but, it is good. But I've seen it. Well, yeah, good. but I mean, I just I can say it's a labour of love, and that, that, that should be its justification, isn't it? It's, it's good material, really good material, and we've got to find a way of getting it into. I want to get it into large large theatres, and so we've got this this animation that goes with it. We can't just be two chairs and, and black drapes. You, know, you won't get into into larger theatres with that, um, and and also got to find a way of supporting the language, and so the animation. I don't know if anyone's seen it here, but uh, but the, the animation, it's very difficult to describe. But um, Charles Peaty has, has done these black and white silhouettes, mostly, um, uh, for, and, and they run for the whole 50 minutes, some of them uh, all animated, and uh, they do serve the language, and they also allow for when I go off on a, on a, on a, on a, on a distraction for, for, the, for, that, for the, that to illustrate what's going on in my, in my brain. Um, and I think it's very clever, because often if you have a, a sort of too literal set design, whether it's, in this case, it's a moving set design, but if, if, uh, normally set design is fixed. But uh, if you have a too literal set design, it can take away all of the poetry and detail that, 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 that the actor is giving. But this manages to be restrained enough to be able to keep the focus on the words, uh, but at the same time, it's, it, 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 it's, it makes it feel like a, a much richer experience than, than just two people on quite a, a, yes. a, a big stage. So it's, it's, uh, what are the technicalities of getting, because it's, it's, it's moving th pretty much throughout the whole of the performance. Is, is, are there a lot of cues, or is it it's not just somebody pre pressing go at the start? It's a three-person three show. It's Rebecca Johnson. Um, and I come to her part actually in a minute because I, it's it's. Uh, uh, but there's also Rebecca Maltby who is the stage stage manager, and she did the Alex show, which was involved, as I say, 13 screens and 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 it, any visual or verbal cue, then then the next file would come in. There's enough running so that so that, so that the, the there's quite a lot of computer stuff going on, and so with this one, absolutely, she she takes very very tight cues. And uh, so the whole thing flows, and it looks as though it's happening on cue. When I say breadsticks snap with a sneeze <laughs> of dust, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a cue for that, and, and there's sound and, vis and, and vision cues. Mm -hmm. And it's all seamlessly integrated. So that yeah, no, it should, look, it should yeah. look, it should look, and you, yeah, people should think, how's that done? But it is, it's, it's quite com it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were about to talk about Rebecca Johnson. In the process of bringing it to the stage, 
did you have to do a sort of uh, dramaturgical job to take it from poetry on the page to, a, to something that could be performed? Um, well, it, it's written for to be read. Um, and within it, the, the, is, there are bits where she, where there's him and her, that's the sort of the names of the characters. And, there's, and, and he is the narrator, him is the narrator, and, and she is the, um, uh, his ex-lover. And there's times when she talks, and there are times when he's talking to the audience, and she's not aware that he's talking to the audience. Uh, there are times when they're, they're, they're having their dialogue, uh, and there are times when she's sort of almost in stasis um, whilst he's, whilst he's bashing out to the audience a, a, a piece about how he's thinking. But in fact, that's the, sen the sense of that what he's saying is actually something that she's receiving. So it's, it's, it's a really tricky part. Also, she is the weight of the piece in the sense that all the, all the longing, all the balance, all the, all, the, all the impatience that she brings to it um, is, is crucial to it. Otherwise, he's just a pest. And, 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 but the, 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 the balance between the two characters is, is, is vital in it. And uh, Rebecca um, brings that weight to it, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I said earlier that um, the, the, the concept of this uh, show is, is very simple, just to, you know, two people meeting over lunch. I think another very, very simple, bizarrely simple concept is the concept behind uh, Cold Feet. Three couples getting on with things. Yeah. <laughs> if I try to pitch that to a... Um, to a, to a, to you know to a, a, the BBC or something. I'm sure they'd say, "Well, no, go away <laughs> and work on it." What, what what do you think was the magic that made Cold Feet work as well as it did? Well, I'm interested that you hear your summation of that because the be the, the most successful shows had the most boring premise very mm. often. You could say two two a husband uh, a father and and sons scrab squabble in a scrapyard, or you know it just it doesn't there's very little there to to to, to excite. Mm -hmm. Any, anything that has a really comic present uh, premise very often doesn't last more than one episode. You, the, the premise, uh, you, the you, get, you yeah. get bored with it. Um, so essentially, Cold Feet isn't about anything other than people who are inadequate at life, really, who, who are just who try doing their best and, and, and striving and, 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 and failing and, and doing that, you know, it's somehow, somehow getting through, muddling through. In the early days, we, it was about these, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was about these three couples in Manchester, and we were all clinging onto our youth, <laughs> Now, we came, then we did five series, and then we, did, we came 13 years off, and now we've come back for another three. We've just finished the third series of the new lot. And um, youth's out the window, you know, now what do you do? <laughs> and and uh, so, so all the, all the, all the um, circumstances that get, you get thrown in, in, in that situation um, are things that we have to, to cope with, and, and, it, and it puts a lie to the thought that maybe when you reach 50, you become a moral philosopher with the answer to the meaning of life. And, and you don't, you struggle, you flail. <laughs> And uh, it's, all about, it's about flailing. And, and do, you, do you remember first looking at the scripts or first hearing about the, 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 yeah. the project? You, you didn't turn this one down. Well, do you know, I did, uh, in one sense, because um, I, uh, I was doing um, Afro Ben's The Rover in Salisbury. This is in 96. And um, all shaggy and you know, playing Wilmore in that and uh, loving it. And then I got this 50-minute um, one-off comedy drama from Granada to, uh, to read, and I th it was good. It was really Jimmy and Helen's story, the, the Adam and Rachel story, um, their love story with the satellite characters. Our characters were, were um, more, in, more in, in, in the background, but, but it, was their, it was their thing. And uh, it was a good, well-written, really well, very well-written, 50-minute um, comedy drama done as a pilot, but not with any, no one was selling it as the idea of a series. So I did an audition for it, met um, Christine Langan and Declan Lowney and uh, Andy Harris, and, and um, 
And then I got a recall, but it was the day of the technical run-through of the rover at Salisbury. And I said, no, 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 theatre is much more important. And uh, I turned down the recall for it because uh, they wanted to put Hermione and myself together to see if, if, how that, if that looked right. Uh, and fortunately, um, and if I'd known that um, uh, 22 years later <laughs> I'd still be doing it, uh, I would have, um, I would, uh, Salisbury wouldn't have seen me for dust. But uh, I didn't. I, I, I turned them down. And luckily, the, the, the job came through. So um, they, uh, that was a lucky thing. But it was, a, you know, in, in retrospect, a bit of a close-run thing to, mm -hmm. to have turned mm -hmm. it down. Yeah, I, d I didn't realise I was asking you a leading question then, but you really, yes, it was really, it shows the precariousness of the industry, doesn't it? That well, quite, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the, and that's another thing I'd say to the, uh, is to, to, to youngies, is, 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 you know, ride your luck, you know, when it, when it happens, but, uh, and be aware that, that uh, luck can come in, in sort of from strange angles. Mm -hmm. And being involved in a, in, in a series which, as you say, is a long-running series with, with, with a big gap in the, in the middle, but it's sort of about people growing up, people of your own age growing up. Uh, d d is there a sort of parallel in your own life about your own growing up at the same time as these characters are growing up? I don't associate myself with the character at all. No. I, I try not to. I mean, I, 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 um, uh, other people might think <laughs> <laughs> that's for them to judge. But uh, uh, I don't like to, whenever I'm doing anything, actually, I don't say, what do I think about this? How do I judge it? You work out what the author's intentions are. And of course, you've all aspects of you and your natural reactions and stuff like that do come through, or at least you, you may draw on them, perhaps. But I never see myself as, ch I never ch sort of channel myself into anything I'm doing. And, and, and it's never about me. And that's another thing I'd say to youngies. It's not about you, actually. And once you know, once you acknowledge the fact that, the, that the, now this is controversial because people can misinterpret it, but on one level, the actor as a person is irrelevant. Now, I mean, I say that only because, of course, you're, you're bringing a lot of your qualities which, which, which happen, but it's not about you. And it actually can help with nerves, because when you're about to go on, you're doing a play. People have come to see a play. They haven't come to see a performance. And so, so you, you aren't being judged, and this is why stand-ups, I think, get so nervous, because it often is about them. Mm -hmm. But to, as an actor, you, you just say, it's not about you. It's nothing to do with you. Just do the play. And, uh, and that's what people have come to see. And, and, and don't try and skew every line you utter as to how you feel about it. And, and, and also, you mustn't judge the character you're playing. You should be able to judge him or her um, more objectively than that. Allow what you have to come through. And that's, you can't do anything about the raw material that, that you've got. But, but don't, don't steer it round to, to, to your agenda. And in, and in that sense, it, it, you know, it, it's, it would be reasonable for an actor to go into the business because they want to be liked. They like showing off, they like being performed, they like people looking yeah. at them, they like you know, endearing themselves to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and if that is your attitude, you can then start doing performances that are all very smiley and, and nice and whatever, but not necessarily right for the character. Are you happy, again, we can link the two things, the, the, the song of lunch, he, he doesn't come off that well as, <laughs> as a person. And, in, in, and uh, again, uh, David Marsden in Cold Feet, he's, He's a bit of a prat a lot of the time. Do, do, are you happy to be? You're not necessarily the baddie, but you're 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 not necessarily going out to be loved. No, I, and I think um, well, as a performer, I think you must never confuse applause with love. You know, people, people. So if you if you as soon as you start doing that, that's where madness lies, and that's where deep unhappiness lies, because you wonder why 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 you're not as as much loved as <laughs> as, as you were the last week, you know, or last year or whatever. So. Um, no, you shouldn't. No, no. I mean, exactly. If, if you dissociate yourself from, from that and, and if people hate the character or find the character annoying, um, 
uh, let them. You know, mm-hmm. it's fine, mm-hmm. and, and uh, that's that's nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you watch yourself on screen? Do you, do you look back at your old? Because you've got all this evidence that's out there. No, I always. I remember hearing a story of John Belushi um, eating burgers and watching his reruns uh, for, for, for the, uh, the uh, actor, uh, and uh, and I think that's a sad, sad. Um, that's a sad way to go on. Uh, no, I don't. I, I, um, if I'm doing a showreel, that's all modern stuff. That's new stuff. But, yeah. but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't turn on. Oddly enough, when we, when we, um, we, the first day, the day before, we've, the first reboot of Cold Feet, you know, so 13 years later, and I hadn't seen any of the, f- of the f- previous five series, which we'd done you know, many, many years before. And I was on the train going up to Manchester, and I was sitting there, and I was looking in the, in the, uh, in the, in the window, and it was, it was evening, it was dark, and uh, the, the person in front of me, in a carriage seat in front of me, was watching Cold Feet. And I could see a reflection <laughs> of it. And so I could see myself in reverse from 1996 for the first time. I hadn't heard, so I was, I was intrigued. I was sort of looking through the window. Sort of <laughs> but uh, but uh, so that was the only time I've ever seen the old stuff. And they didn't, and they didn't spot you on that occasion? Well, it turned out to be Art Malik who was doing his research. Oh, okay, his research. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 in that sense, that you're happy, a bit like a stage actor, you know, the performance you you will do this afternoon, the performance you did yesterday afternoon, it's gone into the air. It's it, it's 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 always present tense in the th- in the theatre. Yeah. Is that a sort of attitude that you have in in, in film as well? Yeah, I think um, uh, acting is about repetition uh, at root, perhaps. It's not about it. Of course, it's about lots more. I think, but but uh, essentially, I think everybody can act once. Everybody's good at acting once. And and the and the juices that are flowing when you're when you're acting is is trying to find what it was about that immediacy that you're um, having to raise again. Uh, and and I think people say on people that I do telly with say, oh god, I couldn't possibly do theatre. I mean, repeating yourself so much. Well, t- television, you're repeating yourself. You're repeating yourself about thirty times, probably in in rehearsals and takes and angles and stuff like that. You're endlessly repeating it. And I think if you can repeat yourself plausibly five times, you can do it five hundred times. Because it's the same kidding yourself in, in, your, you know, in, the, in the moments that you're kidding yourself that you're doing it for the first time. And you're landing it as if it is for the first time. And the audience are receiving it as though you're doing it for the first time, even though it's, it's, it's the 500th. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, it is, it is about plausibly repeating yourself. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, indeed. So, so when, I, when you are about to go on stage, um, you, yeah, you have to scrub the previous night completely. Well, no, you don't. You give yourself a couple of notes earlier in the day about what, what, how, about something you might do, or just before I'm about to go on, I might think, well, just you know, just angle that slightly differently or something. Just give yourself one of those notes. But essentially, you're just you're you're doing it afresh, which is why actors always say, "Oh God, tonight was so much better than last night." It's probably about three percent different, if if that. It's probably pretty much the same. But you you have to kid yourself that you're doing it afresh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, the advantage of the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, uh, for for many actors anyway, is that. Where else in the world would you get the chance to do three weeks on the trot in the same room in front of different audiences every day? And that can only make you um, either a better actor or the material better at delivering that. that It's a proving ground. I mean, the festival is a fantastic proving ground. You try it out. You start off. You, 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 it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a way of working out whether it's how it's working, how best it's working, and you, and you are. You're endlessly sort of tinkering with it. And, uh, and it's a proving ground for anything sort of vaguely experimental. You have no idea how it's going to go. You can't arrive here with any, any, any whiff of expectation. You know, you might think, oh, this, shows, this is really good. This is really good material. I think the cartoons are really fantastic. And, and I think there's a, there's a chance that we might do okay. I had n- you have no expectation beyond that. Mm-hmm. It's entirely up. And, you, and, then, 
and then if it works, uh, yeah, fantastic. You know, people, uh, you know, the whispers start. And that's what's great about the festival. It's the first few days. Everyone's looking at the festival, looking through the festival pro brochure, and every single description of every single show tells you they are completely brilliant, and yeah. you'd be mad to miss <laughs> it. And there's 3,000 of these things, and everyone's really dizzy. And then the whispers start, and then people start saying, well, actually, I saw that, or whatever, and it was really good, or um, why not give that a go? And uh, then there's the sort of, sort of Sort of palpable sense of people sort of of, of, of learning through 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 the whispers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, this week that we're now entering, this sort of week two week, is the, is the real testing ground, I think, because because the the myths have gone, the possibilities have gone. That this is reality. You know, that we know how whether the shows are good or bad or whatever, and, and you've just got to get on with it. Yeah, and good or bad, you see, again, you see, it's, it's there's the, the three thousand shows. There are however many hundreds of thousand people here, with hundreds of thousand different tastes, and uh, so good or bad. Subjectively, fine, yes, but yeah. but that, uh, there's uh, there's many people who who uh, will uh, will go for shows that other people think are bad and 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 get them, and also you get the spirit of it. And I, I adore about this is you turn up to any dusty black box and there's somebody putting it on, and you may not like it, but you're doing it. You're not just talking about it. So much of this profession is mittyishly in the head, and you're thinking, oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to do that. And you talk about it and you talk yourself out of doing it. Mm -hmm. These people, they've gone and done it. You know, even if you're not. You know, you think, well, that could be better, or, but they're they're actually doing it, and uh, and that's to, that's something you'd say, well, great, good yeah, on you. Yeah. yeah, and that's why there's such a fantastic energy in the city yeah, at yeah, the yeah. moment. Um, I'm in, I should just say I'm enjoying the chat and having a lovely time, but um, I'm sure that there's there's uh, there's people out there um, who've got lots of interesting questions. I haven't mentioned Downton Abbey, I haven't mentioned Toast yet, uh, and if you would like to, I'll come to 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 the audience in a second. I'll just ask uh, another question or two, and uh, when I do come to you, there is a roving mic that Heather will bring round to you. To, uh, so that you can be heard. Um, uh, that, 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 that I'm just thinking, putting the two ideas together, that sort of love of the present tenseness of performance, but also uh, then returning after 13 years to, to, to cold feet. Did you think, no, we shouldn't be going back over old ground, that was then, let's leave it, or, or were you, did you think it was a good idea straight away to, to, to reunite the old team? Well, we'd finished it in 2002, 2003, I think, 2002. And, uh, and then almost every week, for the last, for the next ten years, someone was saying, "Is Kulfi coming back?" <laughs> and 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 the, and the pat answer was, "No, no, it was of its time. Uh, no point reheating the souffle. You know, just try, just why, no, just don't try and. You know, there's a bad, there's a poor history of, of of revivals and so forth. So you say say all that, and then and I and I believe that, and uh, and then uh, ITV said that they were interested in doing some more, and my first reaction was, "Well, Downton's finishing. They're looking for something to fill the schedules." And I wasn't sure if it was just a cynical marketing thing, just sort of in the, in the absence of any other better ideas. And that was a, there was a danger of that. And then I met, we met the, individually met the writer, Mike Bullen, and, uh, and he, sort of, he had ideas of... of he, he, the great thing about what Mike has done is he's, in the five years we did it, between 1997 and 2002, he, um, he allowed us to develop, he allowed us to get older in that time. We weren't just waving the banners that we were flying in '96. We aren't the, the same. The, I, I hate it when a script has the character is this, and they give you a rubric of the character, and, and you and you're, you're expected to that's how, who you are. No, you develop, and he's allowed us to develop. So the 13 years gap, he he allowed that time to have dented us, to have scarred us, and and all that. And and so we weren't playing what we were playing before. We were playing our age, and and so oddly enough, it suddenly felt, through talking to him, that actually the show could be could be richer for it, and uh, it would be something that, that might have some value. Um, uh, no, we, I didn't know, but, 
and you still don't know. We know every, every series we've done, we've never assumed it's going to be any good. We just sort of do it as best we can and, and hope for the best. But, uh, yeah, it has developed in a way which I think um, means it has its value mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. and isn't just a, re a rehash. I hate, you know, it's yeah, terrible yeah. to do a, a rehash of what it is. It's a development. Mm -hmm. Cold feet too. Cold feet, just when he thought <laughs> it was safe. Yeah. Uh, let's hear from you. Um, who'd like to ask a question? Uh, there's one right on the back there, and then later one, one on the front. <laughs> well, I get the 007 thing out of the way very, very quickly. Uh, it, it was, uh, uh, there was a time when, <laughs> Timothy, good morning. There was a time when uh, Timothy Dalton was, um, I think, been offered it. And uh, I suspect there was, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect there was some sort of contractual thing and he wasn't accept taking it. And so what they did was they got a whole lot of people in um, to, and so that they could say, so Barbara Broccoli met various people, including me at the uh, Athenaeum Hotel in London. And... Uh, uh, and I think it was a way of saying, well, we're still seeing people, Timothy, you know, obviously you've got, got yeah. a sign, you know, I'm not quite sure how serious that, that uh, interview was. No, and 007 would not uh, suit me at all. I could play the saint, I think. Um, uh, with, um, I, I was, I, I, I'm, I'm not very good on stunts, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm about as dangerous as I get is sort of hand-to-hand -hand irony. <laughs> so, uh, so I think the saint would have been more suitable. I'd never have... Uh, um, cut the mustard with as, 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 as Bond. can believe it. And um, uh, as far as, yes, uh, John Lemez. Uh, this came through. This was a BBC Four film. We filmed in Glasgow, though, set in Earl's Court, um, uh, about Hattie uh, Jakes and her relationship with uh, her husband, John Lemezre, and uh, her lover, who was a, a, a driver she, she met. And who came to live in their house, and Lemez, which is true, didn't, um, didn't leave the house. He just moved upstairs to the spare room. Uh, it was a very sad and affecting story, and uh, by Stephen Russell, and it was, uh, I, and I love doing it. Um, I'm not the same shape as Lemez, uh, it was sort of slighter and, and everything. Um, I loved playing him, um, and I didn't want to do an impression in the sense that I didn't want people to... I always slightly worry about these drama docs when, when, when you get something which is, is played as an impression. And I think I, I, you, 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 it sort of gets in the way, the, sort of the, the technical prowess of the, of, the, of the performance and sometimes get in the way of, of the play, sometimes. And, uh, but, but of course, I, I, I researched him. I looked at him very, very closely um, and just worked out where his voice came from and, um, and the set of himself, how he set himself and studied his This Is, this is Your Life, when we, we recreated a, a sequence of, of Hattie Jakes's This Is Your Life. And I studied that very, very closely. And, um, but in doing it, I didn't have um, the impression in mind, other than just a, a technical thing as to where it came from. And, in, and actually, I used to, just before I'd do a scene, I would, I would uh, recreate one of his... Uh, one of his uh, voiceovers <laughs> for Home Pride. <laughs> but, uh, and that was the one way of just, just finding, and I can't do it now, I I'm not practiced in it, but, uh, 
but uh, I would just set myself for him in that regard. But beyond that, uh, it would be just um, just doing doing the doing the part, not to be not to be overtaken by by other people's expectations, no, um, and not to worry about about not doing a, the perfect impersonation. But it was a good play, and it was it was worth doing, and and and, and I think uh, I'm delighted you remember it. Mm -hmm. uh, question down on the front here. Well, there, there, it'll be, it'll, everybody else will be able to hear you if, if you. There it is. Hi, I just watched that. I think you're on. Yes. It'll it'll be going through to the recording. Yeah, I know you're obviously familiar with Christopher Lee's work and you liked it, so was that make it easier for you to learn the script with its own verse or no? That's really interesting. I, um, uh, the, the verse does help learning it. Uh, I mean, the thing is that with Christopher Reed's writing, because he's a poet, he, he's good with words. <laughs> there's one, actually one word in the middle that I didn't even, I've never heard before. Sescubidalian. Yes, there's that one. <laughs> Sescubidalian is, uh, is, is, a, is a literary gag. I mean, there's little literary gags in there. Sescubidalian simply means, and he talks about a peppermill, and he says a sescubidalian peppermill. Sescubidalian simply means a word that's got so, too many syllables in it. <laughs> so, I mean, you don't need to know that. I've noticed that in his new book, which he's launching at the Edinburgh Book Fair, Book Festival, uh, next week, um, is, uh, which is a follow-up to uh, T.S. Eliot's Book of Cats. It's the 70th anniversary of that coming up, and uh, Faber and Faber have commissioned Christopher to write um, Old Toffer's Book of Consequential Dogs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've just done the audiobook for that. And Sescubidalian comes into that as well. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a favourite word of his. However, learning, learning it, which was a, a feral task, um, was made easier by the fact that he, every word that he chooses is, is, is the opposite one. You know, whenever I was, what is that word, you know, trying to think I know it and I don't really quite know it, and go back to the book, he's always got the peachiest word for it. So in a sense, that it is the, 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 the perfection of the language um, uh, is something that may, does make it easier to learn. But essentially, yeah, I've just got to sit down and learn it, and that's, that's the, uh, at the root of it, which was, which was you know, tough, but um, uh, really pleasurable. And I, I, I love performing it because the language is so, so great. Because it sort of has a quality, although it's not a monologue, it has a quality of a monologue because there's so much internal reflection. And yeah, I mean, it is, it is, it is strictly a, 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 a two-hander, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I come back to that because, because it, it, it wouldn't exist without the other, the other, the other party, without, the, without the, um, the emotional weight that the other, and the other, the other um, part brings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another question, maybe? We've just got a couple of minutes left before we finish, so all the hands will suddenly go up. It, have you found somebody? Yep. That's interesting. Yes. Uh, hello. Um, I enjoy doing radio. Uh, I enjoy doing. Um, I, w I started in radio comedy, where we used to play to an audience. And then, as I say, I was allowed down the end of the pier and on, onto the mainland and do, do, to do radio dramas after about 10 years of, of, of working. Um, my, my, I, one thing about radio I find, I, I, did, um, I did Mr. Knightley and Emma once, and we had a, we had a, we had a stage man, a studio manager who, who knew the play, or had the play on, on, his, on his thing, and he pointed the microphone at us, say, say it's you, say you're Emma and I'm Mr. Knightley. We were able to look at each other and do the... Do the do the dialogue like that. Whereas whereas most radio plays, which is something you have to sort of learn technically how to do it, is that you're you're both speaking to the same microphone, so you're talking to each other at 45 degrees. 
So I'm talking to you at 45 degrees. I'm not actually taking your eye contact, which is why sometimes I think radio plays can sound rather stilted. Um, because we're not, we're not talking to each other. We're, we're too, it's, it's a technical exercise in, 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 doing, in playing into, the, into, into, into a void, really, in some ways. So um, I like to do radio, if possible, to be able to um, look at the person, but that's not always, always the case. Uh, and I've done a lot of radio, yeah, and, and, I, and I enjoy doing it. And um, uh, so both, both, uh, yeah, both comedy and, and, uh, and the dramas. I did a scattering on the radio, is, um, which was actually... Um, my introduction to Christopher um, uh, a long time ago as the, as the play. But, uh, yeah, I, t I turn up quite a lot. But there is this technical thing, which I, don't th I think is underrated among, by, by um, the radio directors. Which, so if I was directing radio drama, I would definitely have actors being able to look at each other. Yeah, and the, all that sort of depth of field you can get with, if you... And, and Actually, I do sometimes feel with radio that you, you can, it's almost like you can feel the scripts, you can hear the scripts, because it's not, it doesn't have that sort of spark. Yes. I had, to do, I had a very strange radio job the other day. It was rather uh, a mournful exercise. Have we got time? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, um, uh, they had a, a two-part play of, about John Betjeman, and uh, there were four days recording, and uh, my old friend Benjamin Whitrow, who was um, playing Betjeman, uh, Ben was the uh, lead in my first job, uh, Noises Off, and we've been friends ever since. Um, and Ben, uh, after the third day, died uh, that evening after the third day. And um, uh, I was recruited to um, take, take over from him. I offered to be his understudy. Because I, um, so um, uh, we had to sort of halfway through the second of the plays. They played a bit of music. And then, uh, and then I, had, I took over as Betjamin and, and played the rest of the, um, rest, rest of the part, uh, which was... Um, that was uh, a challenge and also um, uh, poignant, actually, mm -hmm. I have to say. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that was uh, a recent radio outing. Great. Um, I think that's the end of our time, I'm afraid. Um, it's been fantastic. We've been, where have we been? We've been, we've, 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 we've been, it's been educational. We've learned about the words sesquipedalian. <laughs> we've learned about hand-to-hand -hand irony. <laughs> uh, we've learned about half man, half biscuit. We've had a very good, I've had a very good time. Um, um, and you can have a very good time if at 2.20 uh, you head round to the uh, Pleasance Forth to see the Song of Lunch. And I hope that the two parts come together in the future. That would be really interesting to see. But um, uh, in the meantime, let's give a big round of applause to Robert Bathurst. Whether it's still yeah. raining outside. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Pleasance Bites, and a very special thanks to Mark, Robert, and the wonderful live audience at the Pleasance Cabaret Bar. Robert's five star performance can be caught daily at 2.20 pm at the Pleasance Courtyard this August. Tickets are selling fast, so grab yours while you still can at pleasance.co.uk. And while you're there, why not take a moment to peruse the menu of over 260 other shows with theatre, comedy, kids shows, circus, physical theatre. There's something for everyone at the Pleasance this fringe. If you like this episode, why not leave us a review or rating and listen to the podcast archive where you can find brilliant conversations with the likes of Miriam Margulies, John Hanna, Paul Merton, Rula Lenska and many, many more. We look forward to you joining us again right here at the heart of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe for another episode of Pleasant Bites.